Going to be learning in Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the third piece in Hilchos Masa HaKarbanos. This is Parak Yerches Halacha Yud. And Rab Chaim in this piece is trying to define what the status in Halacha of an Asham Talui, which is a carbon which is brought when a person is not sure whether they sinned. So ordinarily, if somebody sins, they bring a carbon Chatas, a sacrifice for sin. But in a case where it's unclear whether they sinned, so they bring an Asham Talui. So since the whole carbon comes because of a doubt, it's not clear whether the carbon is considered a definite carbon or a doubtful carbon. So Rab Chaim is going to analyze how we view this carbon. Now, before we get to Rab Chaim's analysis, we need a few pieces of background information. There are two types of carbonot that come for a doubtful sin. One is called an asham talui, and the other is called a chatas ha'of habal ha'safek, a bird chatas which comes in a case of doubt. Now, the difference between them is that when it comes to a carbon so there's a division between a bird chatas and an animal chatas, depending on which sin it is. So now when there's a case of doubt, we're not sure if the person sinned. So if it's a chatas ha'of, a bird chatas, then they have to bring a bird chatas, which comes in a case of doubt. But if it's a chatas, which would have required an animal, so then if we're not sure whether they sinned, it transforms into an asham talui. Instead of bringing a chatas at all, they bring a different type of carbon, which is an asham when we're not sure they sinned. So there's two different tracks here depending on whether this sin requires an animal or a bird. Now one of the key differences is that a chatas ha'of ha'bala suffolk cannot be eaten, you cannot do anything with the actual meat because it wasn't slaughtered properly. So the only thing they do is sprinkle the blood on the mizbeach, but nobody eats the meat at all. As opposed to an asham talui, which is a regular carbon, so it's slaughtered, and then they use the different parts for the service in the Beisam Mikdash, and then the Kohanim are able to eat the meat. So there's a big difference between the chatas ha'of ha'bala safek, where nobody eats the meat at all, versus the asham talui, which is a regular carbon. Now, the Gemara in Krisus raises an interesting issue, which is what about shchutechutz? Let's say someone slaughters this carbon outside the Beis Mikdash, which is ordinarily a very big sin. But in this case, it's not even clear that they need a carbon to begin with, meaning there's a possibility they didn't sin, in which case this animal shouldn't have been sanctified at all. So when they go ahead and slaughter it outside the Beis Mikdash, do we punish them because they slaughtered a carbon animal outside the Beis Mikdash, Or do we not punish them because we're concerned that this animal should never have been sanctified to begin with. So that's a debate between Rabbi Meir and the rabbis. The rabbis hold that in order to punish someone, we require ikba isura which means there has to be a set prohibition. We need to know that there's for sure a prohibition in this case. But if we're not clear to begin with whether there's a prohibition, so for example, we don't even know if this animal should have been sanctified at all, then we're not going to punish someone for slaughtering it outside the Beis HaMikdash. Rebbe Meir, though, doesn't require Ikba Isura. So even though there's a possibility that this animal shouldn't have been a carbon at all, but now, since it is a carbon, so the person who slaughters it outside gets punished. So that's that's the background information for this ruling in the Rambam. The Rambam writes, These two types of sacrifices, the Asham Talui and the Chatasofabalasofeik, if someone slaughtered them outside the Beis Hamikdash, Pater, he is exempt, because there was no Ikba Isura. So the Rambam rules like the rabbis that since there's no Ikba Isura in this case, because maybe there shouldn't have been a sacrifice to begin with, therefore we don't punish the person for Shchute Chutz 
for slaughtering it outside the Beis HaMikdash. So the Raivet disagrees with the Rambam, and he says, I don't know where the Rambam got this halacha from. And then he goes on to quote a very strange Tosefta, which rules that if someone slaughters the Chatas HaOf HaBala Sofek outside the Beis HaMikdash, then they need to bring an Asham Talui as atonement. And if someone slaughtered the Asham Talui outside the Beis HaMikdash, then they need to bring a Chatas. So this seems like a very strange idea that we reverse the atonement that if the person slaughtered the chatas of Safek, they bring an asham talui. And if they slaughtered the asham talui, then they bring a chatas. So the Raivet explains that even though this seems strange, there is a logic to this, which is that since the chatas of Safek can't be eaten at all, there's nothing to do with the meat. It's just a matter of using the blood. So when the person slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they haven't really violated a normal normal carbon. They did violate the rules of the chatas of Safek, but they haven't done the normal sin of slaughtering a carbon outside the Beis HaMikdash. So therefore, we give them the Asham Taloi. That's the standard punishment in a case where we're not sure if somebody sinned. So since this is a case where it's up in the air whether they sinned, so they bring in Asham Taloi. So that part of the formula makes sense. As opposed to in the other case where they slaughter the Asham Taloi outside the Beis HaMikdash, so that is a normal carbon. Even though it originally came because of a case of doubt, so it was unclear whether that person needed a carbon, but once they sanctified this animal as an asham talui, so if a person slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash, it's the same as slaughtering any regular carbon animal. So therefore, they have to bring a chatas, which is the normal punishment for slaughtering a regular carbon outside the Beis HaMikdash. So according to the Raivid, the difference in the atonement processes follows from what type of carbon it is. Since the chatas of Safek is not a regular carbon, so someone who slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash doesn't get the regular carbon punishment. Instead, they bring an Asham Talui. But the Asham Talui is a regular carbon, even though it started from a case of uncertainty. But at this point, it's a regular carbon. So if someone slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they get the regular punishment, which is a chatas. Either way, according to the Raivit, it is not correct to say that someone who slaughters these animals outside the Beis HaMikdash does not get punished, but rather, as the Tosefta said, they do get punished. For a chatas of Suffolk, they have to bring an asham talui, and for the asham talui, they have to bring a chatas. So there is a punishment for slaughtering them outside the Beis HaMikdash. So now Rab Chaim quotes that the Kesef Mishnah asks the obvious question on the Raivid, which is that the Raivid begins his critique of the Rambam by saying that he doesn't know where the Rambam got this idea that someone is exempt for slaughtering these sacrifices outside the Beis HaMikdash. And the obvious problem is that this is an explicit brisa in the Gemara in Krisus, Daf Yerchesim and Aleph. Someone who slaughters an Asham Taloi outside the Beis HaMikdash, Reb Meir holds their Chayev, the Chachamim Pochim. The Chachamim say they're exempt. So the Rambam is ruling exactly like the Chachamim. So how does the Raivid say he has no idea where the Rambam got this halacha from when it's an explicit Gemara? It's almost like the Raivid forgot an explicit Gemara. So Rab Chaim quotes that there is an approach to explain what the Raivid is talking about in the Achronim, this idea is in the Lacha Mishnah too, that the Raivid read the Gemara and Krisus like Tosvos. Because Tosvos points out that there's a big problem with this Gemara because later on there's another debate between Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim. What happens in a case where a person was not sure whether they sinned, so they set aside an animal as an Asham Talui, and then it turns out that they clarify that they did not sin. 
So what do you do with that animal which was sanctified as an Asham Talui? So Reb Meir says that the animal is now a regular animal. It loses all of its sanctity and you can use it like any other animal. But the Chachamim say that you have to still treat it with the sanctity of a carbon. You can't bring it as a carbon, but you need to wait until it gets invalidated. So the Chachamim there hold that even though the situation was clarified that there was no need for a carbon, this animal is still sanctified because when the person makes it into a carbon, they do so fully. They don't do it conditionally with the idea that if it turns out they don't need a carbon, then the animal is going to lose its sanctity. No, the person sanctifies the animal fully no matter what they're about to find out. So this position of the Chachamim seems to totally contradict their earlier position where they said that if a person slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they're exempt because we're not sure it's a carbon, but they're the ones that hold that a person fully makes it a carbon. So Tosfos explains that there's actually three opinions over here, and the earlier Chachamim who disagree with Rabbi Meir are a different view they're a different Chachamim than the later Chachamim who disagree with Rabbi Meir. So there's three views. There's the first Chachamim, there's the second Chachamim, and there's Rabbi Meir. The second Chachamim hold that once a person makes an Asham Talui, even though originally the case was uncertain, but they make the carbon fully. So now this animal is fully a carbon, regardless of whether they did the sin in the end or not. Either way, it remains a carbon. And the same would be true that if they slaughter it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they're obligated because they slaughtered a carbon animal outside the Beis HaMikdash. That's the second Chachamim. Then there's Rabbi Meir's view, and he holds that when a person makes makes the carbon, it's a full carbon, but on condition that they sinned. But if it turns out that they didn't sin, so then they take back the sanctity of the animal and they can use it however they want. So according to Rabbi Meir, if they slaughter the animal outside the Beis HaMikdash before they clarify the situation, so then they're obligated because at that point, this animal is a carbon animal. But once they clarify the situation that they didn't sin, so then the animal loses its sanctity. And of course, if they slaughter it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they're not going to be punished. And then there's the first Chachamim who have an even more extreme view than Rabbi Meir himself. And they hold that the person never fully sanctified the animal even before they clarify the situation. So even when there's a doubt whether or not they sinned, the animal is still not fully sanctified. And if they slaughter it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they're still exempt even at that point. So those are the three views. So now this explains why the Ravid is questioning the Rambam, because since the Rambam rules like the later Chachamim, like Chachamim version two, that the animal is always fully sanctified. So the earlier Brisa on Daf Yud Ches is irrelevant to the Rambam, because both of those views are arguing within the view of Rabbi Meir. But the view of Chachamim number two disagrees with both of those earlier views and holds that someone who slaughters the Asham Talui outside the Beis HaMikdash, even after they clarified that they didn't sin, is going to be Chayev. So that's the Ravid's question on the Rambam. Why is he quoting a Gemara, which is not true according to the Halacha? Yes, the Ravid is aware of this Gemara earlier, but he holds that it's irrelevant. There's no reason the Rambam should be quoting it when the Rambam rules like a totally different tradition. So that's the explanation for the Ravid's question. And that's why the Ravid looks to the Tosefta instead as the source for this
this halacha because the Tosefta reflects the view of Chachamim number two that if someone slaughters the Asham Taloi outside the Beis Hamikdash, they get punished. So now the Rambam is going to respond and the Lecha Mishnah says this more clearly. The Kesef Mishnah just says it very briefly. The Rambam is going to hold that the Chachamim in both cases is the same Chachamim, unlike Tosvos. There's only two views. The Chachamim hold that the person totally sanctifies the animal, but still, since we're not sure whether they were obligated to bring a carbon to begin with, so if they slaughter it outside the Beisam Mikdash, they don't get punished. Rabbi Meir, on the other hand, holds that the sanctification is conditional, but at this moment in time, it's still sanctified, so if they slaughter it outside the Beisam Mikdash, they do get punished. So we could say that these two views are consistent with each other. The two different versions of the Chachamim don't necessarily contradict each other. So that's going to mean that the Tosefta that says that a person is obligated for slaughtering an Asham Talui outside the Beis HaMikdash is consistent with Rabbi Meir's view, but the Rambam rules like the Chachamim, so that's why he says that they're exempt. So that's the way the Kesef Mishnah sets up the Rambam's view. Now, Rab Chaim questions that because he thinks that even though technically we could say that, but there's a conceptual issue. What the Ravid is saying is not simply that there's a Brisa which says that slaughtering an Asham Talui outside the Beis HaMikdash, the person is Chayiv. That would be a technical question. How could the Rambam say he's Pater when the Brisa says that they're Chayiv? But he points out that the Ravid is asking a sharper question. And that is that the Tosefta itself draws a key difference between the Chatas Ha'ofabala Safek and the Asham Talui. The Tosefta is pointing out that there's a major distinction between them, that the Chatas Ha'of always remains with its uncertainty. So we're never totally clear that this animal needed to be sanctified to begin with. So that's why the Tosefta rules that if someone slaughters it outside the Beis Hamikdash, they bring an Asham because the whole case is mired in doubt. So the Rambam could rule in that case that they're exempt because there's no ikba isura. It's not totally clear that there's a prohibition to begin with in this case. But the Tosefta draws a distinction between that case and the Asham Talui. Because in the case of the Asham Talui, it's clear that this is a carbon. There's no more doubt anymore, even though it originated with uncertainty. But at this point, this animal is a full carbon. And that's exactly why if the person slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they have to bring a chatas, like slaughtering any other carbon outside the Beis HaMikdash. Because once this animal was sanctified as an Asham Talui, it's indistinguishable from any other carbon. And if someone slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash, they get the exact same punishment. So that means that we've now transcended the origins of this carbon. It no longer matters that originally the case was uncertain because at this point we're talking about a full carbon. So that's the full meaning of the Ravid's critique of the Rambam. How could you apply the concept of Ikba Isura to an Asham Talui and say that it's not clear whether there's a prohibition at all in this case, when it's very clear that the Asham Talui has now become a regular carbon, and anyone that slaughters it outside the Beis HaMikdash violated the regular prohibition of slaughtering a carbon outside the Beis HaMikdash. So the whole concept of Ikba Isura is totally irrelevant, and the proof for that is the Brisa, which distinguishes between the Chatas of Suffolk versus the Asham Talui, so it makes it clear that the Asham Talui is a notch above the Chatas of Suffolk, that it's no longer considered a case of a Suffolk. It's just a regular 
regular carbon at this point, and if someone slaughters it, they have to bring a chatas. So that's the Ravid's question on the Rambam. And based on that, you can't answer that the Rambam holds that the Brisa is Rabbi Meir. Because Rabbi Meir, at the end of the day, holds that there's no ikba isura, but still the person is obligated. This Brisa holds something more radical than Rabbi Meir, that the carbon is a full carbon. So the only way to make sense of that is like Tosvo said, that there's a third opinion, which is Chachamim number two from later on. They're the ones that hold that when a person makes an Asham Talui, even though it originated because of a doubt, but they fully unconditionally make this carbon. So they're the only ones who could have authored that Brisa. So the way Rab Chaim is formulating the Ravid's question, it's clear that the Brisa is reflecting a third opinion, neither Rabbi Meir or the from the first debate because the Brisa holds more strongly than either of them that this is a full carbon and that we see from the punishment that the Brisa gives for the Asham Talui versus the Chattas of Safek. So it's clear that there has to be a third opinion which holds that the Asham Talui is a full regular carbon and that could only be like Tosvo said, Chachamim number two from the second debate with Rabbi Meir. So this goes against the whole setup of the Rambam who rules like Chachamim number one that if someone slaughters the Asham Talui outside the Beis HaMikdash, they're exempt, even though he himself rules like Chachamim number two, that the person unconditionally fully makes this into a carbon. So how do we explain the Rambam? So in the third paragraph, Rab Chaim suggests that the Rambam agrees to the Ravid's idea that he extrapolated from the Brisa that an Asham Talui is a full, totally valid carbon. He doesn't disagree on that point. But he holds that even though it's a full carbon, you're still not obligated obligated for slaughtering it outside the Beis HaMikdash. So that's the part of the equation of the Ravid that the Rambam disagrees with. And the reason for this, Rab Chaim explains, is because in order to be obligated a chatas, there needs to be two steps. One is that the person committed a sin which would require a chatas. Not every sin necessitates a chatas. The criteria for a chatas is a sin which had they committed intentionally would have gotten the punishment of karis, of having their soul cut off. So if they do it unintentionally, then they have to bring a carbon chatas. So that's the criteria for which type of sin requires a chatas. And then the second step is they have to know that they did this sin. So there has to be a yidia when they find out what they did. And with those two things together, the sin and the knowledge of the sin, they have to bring a chatas. So the equivalent is true of an asham talui. They have to do something which was possibly a sin, which would require the asham talui. And then there also has to be knowledge knowledge of what they did. Now, even though here there's not real knowledge because they're always uncertain about whether they did the sin, but there has to be a knowledge of uncertainty. They have to be aware that they potentially committed the sin. And that's the essential halacha of the Asham Talui that the Torah said that even though it's an uncertain yidia, they're never sure whether they committed the sin, but that requires an Asham Talui. So this uncertain form of yidia is exactly when the Torah kicks in the obligation of an Asham Talui. So the way this works is that if in fact they had done the sin, so everything is fine. The Torah said that because they sinned and they have this knowledge that maybe they sinned, so they're Therefore, they have to bring the Asham Talui and they have both steps which are necessary in order to be obligated in the Asham Talui. But what happens if in fact they hadn't sinned? 
So now they're missing step number one, even though there's a doubtful knowledge that they sinned, but they never sinned. So in that case, we have to apply something even more radical, which is that since they have a doubtful knowledge of sin, that counts for both steps according to the Torah. The Torah introduced a novel idea that in a case where someone suspects they sinned, even though they actually never sinned, that suspicion counts for both steps of the process. It counts as if they sinned and as if they have knowledge of the sin and they're able to bring the Asham Talui. So if in fact they hadn't sinned, then the suspicion that they sinned carries a double load and it creates the need for an Asham Talui in place of both the actual sin and the knowledge of the sin. So now Rab Chaim's created two different tracks within the Asham Talui. One is where the person actually sinned, in which case they're obligated in the Asham Talui with the combination that they sinned combined with their uncertain knowledge whether they sinned. And the second track is where they actually didn't sin, in which case they're only obligated in the Asham Talui because of their uncertainty about whether they sinned. Now, of course, we don't know whether they sinned or not. So for us, it's totally up in the air which track in Asham Talui is on. Now, Rab Chaim continues to develop these two tracks, and he says that along the road, there's going to be a major divergence between them. Because if the person actually sinned, so the moment they become obligated in the Asham Talui is as soon as they have uncertain knowledge about whether they sinned. Because now they have a sin combined with the uncertain Yediya. So at that moment, they're obligated in the Karban, and there's nothing further which is required in order to make that an Asham Talui. So the second that person sanctifies the animal as a carbon asham talui, it's fully a carbon with all of the regular halachas of a regular carbon. But in the other track where the person actually didn't sin, so the whole obligation is because of that one moment when they're uncertain about whether they sinned. So now it's a little different. That uncertainty must continue up until the moment that this animal is sacrificed. Because if that uncertainty is ever resolved, so the uncertainty disappears, then there's no basis for this carbon. The whole Asham Talui is resting only on that one moment where they're uncertain if they sinned. So that moment needs to still be applicable when the carbon is sacrificed. If for some reason the moment of uncertainty has been resolved before the animal is sacrificed at some point earlier in the process, so then the whole Asham Talui disappears because there's no longer any basis for this Asham Talui. There is no moment of sin to combine it with because in this track, the person never sinned. So the whole thing is resting on the uncertain Yediyah so that uncertain idea must be there when the sacrifice is brought in order to make it a valid asham talui. So that's going to be a key distinction between these two tracks of making an asham talui. So this brings us back to the case where someone slaughtered the Asham Talui outside the Beis HaMikdash. If it's an Asham Talui from track number one, where the person had actually sinned, so then as we said, the carbon is fully a carbon from the minute they made it a carbon. Nothing further is needed. So if they slaughter it outside the Beis HaMikdash, it's the equivalent of slaughtering any carbon animal outside the Beis HaMikdash, and they get punished. But if this is an Asham Talui from track number two, meaning they hadn't sinned, 
sinned. So then, as we said, the carbon is not valid unless they sacrifice it with the doubt intact. But this animal was never sacrificed because it never made it to the Beis Hamikdash. It was slaughtered before the process could be finished. So since it never reached the end of the process of coming to the Beis Hamikdash and being a carbon, it turns out that it was never really an Asham Talui. Because as we said, the Asham Talui has to finish the process with the doubt intact. But this animal, even though the doubt is intact, but it never finished the process. So it never ended up a proper Asham Talui, and we can't punish the person for slaughtering the animal outside the Beis Hamikdash because it turns out that they slaughtered a non-valid Asham Talui outside the Beis Hamikdash. So Shchute Chutz on an Asham Talui from track number two is not going to be punished. So now we never know whether an Asham Talui comes from track number one or track number two because that's the whole point here. We don't know whether this person sinned, so we don't know which type of Asham Talui this is. So when a person slaughters an Asham Talui outside the Beis Hamikdash, we have a real doubt. If it's an Asham Talui from track number one, then they're obligated. If it's an Asham Talui from track number two, then they're exempt. So that's exactly the debate between Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim. Rabbi Meir holds that you don't need Ikba Isura. So it doesn't matter that we're not sure whether this person violated Shchut Echutz. Either way, we punish them. And they get the standard punishment in a case of uncertainty, which is an Asham Talui. So according to Rabbi Meir, the punishment for slaughtering an Asham Talui outside the Beis Mikdash is bringing another Asham Talui because it's unclear whether the person violated Shchute Chutz. Chachamim disagree and they hold that we do need Ikba Isura. It has to be clear that there was a violation. So since in this case we don't know whether he violated Shchute Chutz because we don't know whether he sinned originally, so we don't know which type of Asham Talui this is, so therefore the person is exempt and they don't need to bring anything. They do not bring another Asham Talui for slaughtering this Asham Talui outside the Beis HaMikdash. So now from Rab Chaim's analysis, it's going to be clear that the Tosefta is talking about something different than the Gemara. Because Rabbi Meir, who says you're obligated in the Gemara, is obligating the person in an Asham Talui, whereas the Tosefta said that he's obligated in a Chatas. So there has to be a key distinction between these two Halachas. And Rab Chaim points out that there is. Because if you read the Tosefta carefully, it says Vihikrivu, that he offered it up. So the case of the Tosefta is subtly different than the case in the Gemara, and this is going to make a major difference. The Tosefta is talking about where it was already slaughtered, and the Zrika, the sprinkling of the blood, was done, and then he did the rest of the service outside of the Beis HaMikdash. But that's different than the case of the Gemara, where he slaughtered the animal outside the Beis HaMikdash. So the Gemara is talking about a much earlier step in the process, which was done outside the Beis HaMikdash, whereas in the Tosefta, he completed the process in the Beis HaMikdash, Mikdash, and then later after the Zrika, he went outside and finished the process up. So now, as Rab Chaim explained, the only doubt in the Asham Talui, whether it's track number one or track number two, is only up until the moment of Zrika. Once the blood is sprinkled, so the atonement was done with the uncertainty intact, so then regardless of which track of Asham Talui this is, it's considered a valid carbon. So after the Zrika, it no longer makes a difference whether the person had in fact sinned or not. And in fact, the Mishnah says that if after the Zrika, 
Shrika, he clarifies the situation that he didn't sin, the Kohanim can still eat the meat. So we still treat this as a valid carbon. So that proves Rab Chaim's point that once the animal is sacrificed and the uncertainty was intact, it doesn't really make a difference anymore at that point whether the person had sinned or not. The only time when it makes a difference is throughout the process between the time they made it a carbon and they brought it. So then if they clarify that they didn't sin, then it's not going to be a valid Asham Talui. But once they bring the carbon, then the whole issue is put to rest. So that's why in the Tosefta, once they did the atonement in the Beis HaMikdash, even though they did the Haktaras Emurim, the burning of the organs outside the Beis HaMikdash, which he should not have done, but that's not going to affect the status of the Asham Talui. This is a full carbon, and since he violated the burning of the organs outside the Beis HaMikdash, he has to bring a regular Chatas. So that's the explanation of the Tosefta. The Gemara, on the other hand, is referring to where they never completed the sacrifice in the Beis HaMikdash, so now it's stuck in the issue of whether this is an Asham Taloi of track number one or track number two. So since the whole thing is in doubt, according to Rabbi Meir, he has to bring an Asham Taloi, and according to the Chachamim, there's no Ikba Isura, so he doesn't have to bring anything. So that explains how the Rambam read the Gemara and the Tosefta, that they do not contradict each other. They're talking about slightly different cases, which makes a big difference in the overall halacha. And the Rambam, who is here presenting the case of the Gemara, rules like the Chachamim that he's exempt. So this is a very nice approach to explain how the Rambam interpreted the Tosefta. But Rab Chaim points out that there's a problem. Because the other case in the Tosefta is the Chatas Ha'of HaBal HaSafek. And the Tosefta uses the same word of the Hikrivu. Now, as we said, when it comes to the Chatas of Safek, there is no burning of the organs. The flesh is not used at all. It's not eaten. It's not burned. The only thing that's used is the blood. So in the Tosefta's case of the bird chatas of Safek, it has to refer to the sprinkling of the blood. There is nothing else. So when the Tosefta talks about the case of the Asham Talui, it's got to be consistent with the other case of the chatas of Safek. And if that case is talking about the sprinkling of the blood, then presumably the Asham Talui is also talking about where the blood was sprinkled outside the Beis HaMikdash. It doesn't make sense to say that that case is where the blood was sprinkled inside the Beis HaMikdash and then only after Afterwards, the organs were burned outside the Beis HaMikdash. So this goes against Rab Chaim's interpretation of the Tosefta. So Rab Chaim says that there's still a way to defend his interpretation of the Tosefta because the Mishnah later on in Krisus Tavchav Gimel Amad Beis has a case where they clarified that the person didn't sin between the time of shechting the carbon and sprinkling the blood. So they shechted the animal, then they clarified that the person hadn't sinned. So what do they do now with the blood that they collected. The Chachamim hold that they have to throw out the blood because it's an invalid carbon. It turns out that this person hadn't sinned. But Rabbi Yossi says that once they collected the blood, they could go ahead and do the Zrika. So that means there's a debate between the Chachamim and Rabbi Yossi what the key moment of atonement is when the Asham Talui gets set in stone that it can no longer be retracted or invalidated. According to the Chachamim, it's the moment of 
Zrika. According to Rabbi Yossi, it's the step before that when the blood is collected. So says Rab Chaim, this Tosefta could be Rabbi Yossi. So the key moment is when the blood is collected. So now he could give the same interpretation in the Tosefta, even though it's talking about the moment of Zrika. In other words, Rab Chaim originally tried to say that the Tosefta is talking about the burning of the organs after the Zrika. But now he's saying that the Tosefta is talking about the Zrika outside of the Beisam Mikdash. But that's still a valid Asham Talui because according to Rabbi Yossi, the blood was collected in the Beisam Mikdash. So the case of the Tosefta is where they slaughtered it and collected the blood in the Beisam Mikdash and then they took the blood outside and did the Zrika over there. But since the Asham Talui was completed in the Beisam Mikdash, so therefore it's a valid carbon. It's still an Asham Talui. And since he did the Zrika outside the Beisam Mikdash, so he has to bring a Chatas. But the case of the Gemara, again, is a little different, where they did the whole Shechita outside the Beisam Mikdash, so the whole process was never completed, so there's a possibility that this was not a valid Asham Talui, and that's why, according to the Chachamim, he doesn't need to bring anything, whereas according to Rabbi Meir, we don't need Ikba Isura, so he has to bring an Asham Talui. So Rab Chaim is maintaining the same general framework of how he interpreted the Tosefta, but now he's saying that the Tosefta is talking about the Zrika outside the Beis HaMikdash and it still doesn't affect the status of the Asham Talui because it follows the approach of Rabbi Yossi. The validity of the Asham Talui was finalized from the moment the blood was collected even before the Zrika was done and since that was done in the Beis HaMikdash so nothing's going to change the status of this Asham Talui. So this is all going to answer the Rambam because the Rambam is referring to the case of the Gemara where the Shechita and the Zrika were done outside the Beisam Mikdash. So that's why the Rambam says that there's no obligation whatsoever. It's not obligated in the Chatas because we don't know whether this was a valid Asham Talui to begin with. If it turns out that he hadn't sinned, so it was an Asham Talui from track number two, since the process of atonement was not properly completed, it turns out that it was an invalid Asham Talui. So he doesn't have to bring a chatas and he doesn't even have to bring an asham talui because it's not ikba isura and according to the chachamim in that case he's totally exempt. And in the parentheses Rab Chaim points out that obviously the Rambam is not ruling in the case of the Tosefta where the Shechita and the Zrika were done in the Beis HaMikdash just the Haktaras Emurim afterwards was done outside the Beis HaMikdash because in that case it's clear that we're dealing with the regular Karban and he would be obligated. Once the Shechita and the Zrika happened properly in the Beis HaMikdash, so then the Asham Talui is the equivalent of any other Karban. So the Rambam would not have ruled in that case that it's Pater. So this is Rab Chaim's explanation in the Rambam, how he interpreted the Tosefta and made sense of it with his ruling, unlike the way the Ravid puts these sources together. Now there's a bunch of details in Rab Chaim's analysis, but the key conceptual point is that there's these two tracks when it comes to the Asham Talui. If the person actually sinned, so then the Karban is based on a two-step process that they sinned and they have a suffix yediyah that they may have sinned, which is parallel to the chatas. On the other hand, if it turns out that the person didn't sin, so then the whole asham talui is based on one step that there's a suffix yediyah, they're uncertain about whether they sinned or not. And that 
plays out differently about whether this is a valid Asham Taloi. Track number one is immediately a valid carbon, but track number two only becomes a valid Asham Taloi when he completes the process of atonement properly. Now, since we never know whether the person sinned or not, so for us, it's always uncertain what type of Asham Taloi this is.